invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. Malachi is one of those books in the Old Testament that it's like, wait, where is that? You know, you get Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all these interesting ones. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find the Gospel of Luke and just go Luke back to Mark, back to Matthew, back to Malachi, you'll find Malachi chapter 3. As we continue in Advent, we're going to be reading an Old Testament and a New Testament text. The Old Testament one giving us these promises, speaking into the covenant that God has made. And the New Testament passage points us each and every week towards the way in which Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. And in fact, that Christ is the only one who could fulfill these promises. So I invite you to open to Malachi 3 and Luke 3. And then we'll all take a deep breath, myself included, and let's pray. God, we come to you in this Advent season, and we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our Redeemer, our promised Savior, our promised Messiah, and the only one who could be the hope of nations. Holy Spirit, speak to us today afresh. Amen. Before we begin with the reading of Malachi 3, it's important that we actually read the last verse of Malachi chapter 2. And we're just going to read the Old Testament text and tip a few things over. We're going to read the Old Testament text first, and then we'll get to the New Testament text a little bit later. But Malachi 2 is the only way that we really make sense of what we start in Malachi 3. If we just read 3, run through 5, it would seem like, eh, okay, this is interesting words. But Malachi 2 cues us into what's happening. So hear these words. And if you're following along, you might hear me interject something. And if you're looking up at me, I'll look up at you when I'm not reading from the text. Malachi 2.17 says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Now pause there for a second. The people have wearied God, specifically the priests and the Levites. Have, they've tired God out. They have worn his patience thin by saying things like, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and where is the God of justice? By asking these questions, by saying, it doesn't seem like God is minding or caring what's going on. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? And Malachi 2.17 kind of leads us in this direction that God is about to have a don't-make-me-come-down-there kind of moment. And here comes the promise of that moment when God will come down. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Meaning at this point, they're reflecting back on a time when worship in the temple led people to righteousness, and when the priests and the Levites pointed people back to God, and when we had moments of confession and assurance, they were moments of true repentance saying, let's get our lives back on target. Those are the days coming back. Those are the times that we need to feel again that we're coming back to God in a sense of renewal. But remember that first, I don't make me come down there moment, started with this wondering of if God was paying attention, if God was doing all the things he needed to do. Is God minding and caring about our sin? So now we pick up to finish Malachi at verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't it interesting that that text talking about, I'm going to be quick to accuse and testify against sinners. I'm going to come down and who can stand when I come in all of my glory? Who can stand when I show up? And yet the closing of that sentence is, do not fear me. Do not fear me, even though I'm going to come and wonder about this burning fire that will cleanse everything away, that will purify and refine. That sounds painful and maybe even a little bit scary. And yet even the prophet Malachi says, do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. Even when I come in all of my glory, even when I come to wash away your sins, even as maybe painful as that might sound, do not fear me. It's an interesting promise because it sounds pretty severe. And also, it does not come with fear and trepidation. It comes with reverence. And this is, I think, because we might misunderstand God's call for righteousness from us. That it is not this time to simply feel bad about all the things that we got wrong, but rather it is an invitation to live into flourishing. I have more than just a theory, but part of my theology and part of Reformed theology in general is that God has a target for our lives. God longs and yearns for human flourishing. So as we're in week two of Advent, the week of peace, remember that that word that perhaps you've heard before of peace is shalom which is not a peace that's just the absence of trouble. In fact, peace can endure even in times of trouble. This shalom is not a type of peace that means nothing is going wrong. It is an enduring presence of God's spirit. And it frees us in Christ to not only flourish into who God has made us to be, but also frees us to pursue our neighbor's flourishing. God seeks our flourishing. 
A simple analogy used elsewhere in the New Testament would suggest that using marriage as an idea of what's trying to be accomplished here, it is not a healthy marriage if one spouse is only focused on not upsetting the other spouse, on keeping things calm enough that no one will be mad or upset of just avoiding trouble. That might be committed, but it's not flourishing. Flourishing would suggest that both spouses are pursuing one another's flourishing. The husband and wife are seeking the other spouse's flourishing. They flourish and they seek the flourishing of others. This is where the law teaches us. Because God has a target in mind. This is my old recurve bow that I got a long time ago. And when I think about human flourishing, when I think about peace, think about this. You've maybe heard it before or somewhere else. That sin, in its origin, is an archery term of how much we missed the mark. The distance from center by which we missed. This is sin. Now, could I have a volunteer as I hold my bow and arrow? Oh, I have arrows nearby. Oh, good. Silas, come on up. Thank you. Now, I have something important to tell you. Can I tell you? I don't want to brag. Do you know how good of a shot I am with the bow and arrow? Not great. Can you... Here, let's just try. I'm watching the candles. Can you lift that? Is that perfect? Okay, here, I'll help you. Don't, here, I'll get it down the stairs for you. Then I've got a special job for you. Okay, perfect. Can you carry this target and just get it maybe down, about halfway down the aisle? That'd be great. Would you be willing to do that? And then I need you to hide behind it. I'm kidding. Perfect. That's great. I love it. That's good. No, you don't have to hide behind it. I was kidding about that part. You can go back to your seat. Thank you, Silas. Much appreciated. Now, let's think about this a minute. Well done, Silas. Silas put the target at a distance where I probably could. I see Chuck Brower and Nick Stotts. <laughs> it's right next to Nick and Karen. Everyone's getting a little further away. Paul, you don't seem too nervous yet. What's that? Oh. <laughs> Think about this. That target is at a distance where I could hit it. I am not going to try to. Because as I said, I'm not a great shot. I just am not. If I were to, let's say, get an arrow loaded or not. At this distance, I could probably hit it. But you know what? I wouldn't try. Because I'm worried that if I don't do well, I might injure other people. Because our actions have impacts on those around us. And what I can anticipate that if I were to aim for that target, I would sin. Meaning I would miss the mark. I would miss center mass. And in my sin... Others would be impacted around me. My sin would not lead to human flourishing. It would lead to pain and fear and brokenness, maybe a lawsuit, quite literally. So I'm not going to take this shot because I don't trust myself to do it well. I'll leave this here. 
Now, how did I learn to shoot? Well, sadly for me, I was actually self-taught, which is probably why I'm not a great shot to begin with. But I wonder if there is one who could teach me to shoot better. And I know there's like 30 of you here that could definitely teach me to shoot better. But here's something else that I know. At this distance, I know a lot of you would totally trust yourself and I would trust you to nail that target. Center mass, perfect, no sin. In the analogy of archery, total righteousness. And I think if I had, you don't have to, Silas, but if I had Silas get up and move that target a little further back to the very end of the sanctuary, it would be a harder target to hit. And I don't think I could hit it. But I know some of you could. If we move the target back to the very end of the narthex by the stairway, there's no way I could hit it. But I do think some of you could. But if we moved it into the multipurpose room and shut the doors, you couldn't hit it. There are some shots that we cannot make without sinning. And this is what the prophets speak of, that, you know, the, the law was to teach us what center was, was how to be on target, that God wanted us to be on target, that our lack of sin could lead to human flourishing, that we could live in such a way for our own betterment and to bring about the betterment and flourishing of those around us. That is what the law teaches us, is how to be zeroed in, how to be on target in the way that we live. But you know what, throughout all of the scripture's history leading up to Malachi, people keep missing. There is ongoing sin. And then the prophets are sent in to remind people of what it is like to live on target. And in fact, some of the prophets and teachers come alongside and teach people how to live their lives more on target. And it maybe takes or it maybe doesn't and it lasts for a generation at most until it has to be taught again and again and again. And some of those shots could be made. Now, when I taught Ada and Ben how to shoot bow and arrow with a smaller bow, I stood alongside of them, and I held the bow with them. So they were holding it, but I held the bow, and I held my daughter's hand as she pulled back and as she hit a cardboard box for the first time. Oh, the joy of righteousness. But that was when I was holding on. If Advent is a season of preparation and of, of some repentance, then in some ways we're asking God, say, Lord, point out to me the ways in which I am off target. And, and don't just teach me because I have all the information that I need, but Lord, I need your presence. Emmanuel means God with us, a nearness. It is a time of Advent where we get closer to Christmas and we say, God, I do need to teach, I do need to refresh myself and how to live on target, but I need you to come alongside me and be so near to me that you can hold the bow for me as I try to shoot on target. And with God helping us, with God near to us, we can live a life that is closer to on target. But as Pastor Audrey led us through our, our confession and assurance, there are times that we just get in the way. That God's steady hands helping us to live on target are met with some of our shakiness. With God's perfect vision for what life can be is met with some of our skewed vision, things that we make a little bit too blurry and we end up shooting off target. So we need to be taught that we can live on target and we need God to be near 
so that God can hold the bow for us and help us to be centered on target. That might work and would work if the target was here in the sanctuary or in the narthex or maybe down by the doors to the multipurpose room. I'm not going to try to take that shot, and none of us are going to try that. But what if there was an impossible shot that needed to be taken that none of us could possibly do? I'm talking about what if there's someone at home who has a target in their house, and from here, we had to try to hit that target. It's impossible. It defies the laws of physics. You would need assistance from the one who wrote the laws of physics to do it. What our living off target teaches us throughout all of the Old Testament is that we, on our own capacity, cannot live on target. We cannot achieve righteousness with no sin, no distance from center. Sometimes we miss the target completely. And even when we hit it pretty close, there's still some error. There is a margin of sin involved. We need a savior who can make the perfect shot. We do need one who can come alongside of us and hold our hands to steady us, to help us aim our lives in the right direction. We do need all of that. But ultimately, for to be the hope of nations and peace and shalom for all peoples, we need a savior who can make the impossible shot that we never could make on our own, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how much we practiced, we need a Savior who can make the impossible shot. And this is Jesus. Jesus, the one who could live the life that we never lived, who could, after his ascension, come and be near to us and continue to dwell in our hearts to keep us on target. But ultimately, our targets in life, what's the span of human years? We needed someone for all of eternity, for all generations, to let us live, knowing that the perfect shot had already been taken. And our time of shooting targets with our life, with all of the years that we have on this earth, it's good practice, because the eternal perfect shot has already been taken by the only one who could. God said in Malachi, basically, don't make me come down there when I come down there, I'm going to be quick to accuse. I will be quick to point out. I'm not going to say that you missed the target and said, hey, good job. You hit Karen, but you tried. No. When God comes down in Malachi, he says, who can stand? I will point out your errors. I will be quick to accuse the place in which you missed the mark, in which you broke my commandments, because it ceased human flourishing. It denied people their dignity. It denied you living the most life of flourishing that you could. I will be quick to point out, but do not fear me, says the Lord. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, or listen along as we read of Jesus being promised, knowing that there is one who would need to take the impossible shot. And Luke, being a physician, is one of the most precise gospel writers. And so Luke starts us out grounding us with a historic context that we can figure out exactly when this is happening and what's being talked about. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. This is also the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you hear the promise of Malachi and the words of Isaiah coming to fulfillment? Noting that this one in the wilderness is going to come to repentance to say, you know what? Start aiming. Remember what the target is. Come back. And yet also, we need one who can come alongside of us and assist us. John has a baptism of repentance. And he wants us to get back on target. The invitation is, hey, the messenger is coming. The messenger that Malachi talked about, the purifier of silver, the one who will wash away our sins like launderer's soap, he's coming. So let's work on our aim a little bit, shall we? Let's get back on target. Let's be mindful And yet, in this same chapter, when people started asking John if he was the Messiah, he's like, hold on, I'm not the Messiah. I am not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who is coming because I might baptize with fire. I might be able to teach you how to get your life on target. I might be able to share the information with you and admonish you and encourage you to shoot a little straighter and to aim a little bit more carefully with how you're living your life. But the one who comes after me That's the one who can make the impossible shot, the one that none of us could make on our own. That's the one coming after me. These promises, to some, Pharisees and Sadducees might stand off and say, you know what, we're a good shot already. We don't need any help. But continue on with me in chapter 3 of Luke, picking up at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that up out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. When John says the axe is already at the root of the trees, think family trees. Think of how, for many, it was a matter of saying, well, we have Abraham as our father. We're righteous. We are righteous people from our lineage. That's like me saying, you know what? My great-grandfather was a really, really good shot. And if you're sitting close to the target or anywhere in the sanctuary, you'd be like, I don't care how good of a shot your great-grandfather was. I don't care if you came from a lineage of amazing archers. What I do care about in this anxious moment is that you're a good shot, or I care a lot that you're not. I mean, even where Ron and Maxie are sitting, it's like, if he misses, that ricochet is going to bounce. Once again, we're not going to shoot a bow and arrow today. And that's actually assuming pretty straight shot. I don't know. It's not about who you're related to. It's not about your lineage. That's John's whole point. You can't rest on the coattails of previous generations. But you can join Generations who have gone by in faithfulness, learn from them. Learn their tricks 
Learn their faithfulness. Learn how they kept their lives on target. Because at its best, tradition is the living faith of the dead. At its worst, it's the dead faith of the living. Learn from the living faith of the dead who taught us how to live lives that were on target and faithful and just and good, mindful of God's commandments, mindful of how we live, that we seek human flourishing of others. John says, don't worry about your family tree, but get ready because the one is coming. John continues with the crowds. And this is the part that, that really captured me this week, that John says all of this, and people don't say, sounds like too hard of a shot to make, I'm walking away. The Holy Spirit is up to something in the wilderness. Remember, because God often works in the places that people don't pay attention. On Wednesday night with, with Kids Quest, we talked about how God was up to something in Nazareth. God is up to something with John out in the wilderness. God works in the places that we're not paying attention. And I think that's true of our hearts as well. God is at work even in the parts of your life that you might not be paying attention to or the parts that you don't want anyone else to pay attention to. The crowds come to him and say, what should we do then? The Spirit is moving. They're convicted. They want to know how to get back on target. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The threefold repetition of what should we do is to show that it's not just the crowds, but it's everyone. It's even the tax collectors came to be baptized. The tax collectors, the soldiers, the crowds at large, everyone is coming and asking, what can we do? You're speaking of peace that will come through Christ, of this shalom, and we long for it. What can we do to make ourselves ready? And John doesn't say, you're too far gone, too late for you. I don't think you could do it anyway. The Holy Spirit does not leave John without words. For when the people come and ask, what can we do? He gives them suggestions. And in some ways, the things he says seem really pretty obvious to us, doesn't it? It's like saying, you know what? Instead of like aiming at the crowd, why don't you at least try to aim at the target? That's almost the equivalent of what John is telling them. Don't like shoot your neighbor on purpose. Try to go for the target. It seems obvious. And yet there is peace that comes in repentance. That everyone is left with something to work on. Something to get a little bit closer to living their life on target. Knowing full well that they will not be able to make the impossible shots. But that they can ready themselves that they can redirect their lives. So what does it look like for you to live your life on target? Where are the areas where we're maybe a little bit off-center? And where are the areas where we say, God, I'm trying to do this on my own, but I need you to come alongside of me. I need you to hold the bow for me again. For my hands are shaky, and for me to have your peace, I need you to steady my hands.
and I don't know where to look. My vision is blurry. I'm not sure. I need the certainty of your vision. I need you to steer me and direct me. I need you to aim the thoughts and intentions of my heart. I need you to be near to me. And even if we hit bullseye after bullseye after bullseye, ultimately, I need you, Jesus, to make the impossible shot for me, to live a perfect life of righteousness, that you could die as a righteous sacrifice and rise again and offer the perfection of your accuracy, your total righteousness to us. And that in that perfect accuracy of Christ's righteousness, it could be shared with us in the waters of baptism. That Jesus does not send people away thirsty, but he gives them water to drink. He does not send people away hungry. He gives them something to eat. Jesus does not send our repentance away unyielded, but rather we come to him and are united with him in the waters of baptism. Friends, seek Christ's peace through repentance and accept his perfection for all of you was already done before any one of us were born onto this earth. Let's pray. God, we long to live our lives on target. We confess before you that sometimes we miss and we don't care. Sometimes we're not paying attention. Lord, help us to live lives that are on target and accurate and true to your righteousness and to your goodness. Lord, as John did not leave the people without ways to prepare themselves, we know that you did not leave us without ways to prepare our hearts either. Point them out to us. Help us to steady the aim of our hands. Help us to see the vision for our lives that you have for us. And may this be not a burden, but a blessing to us. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the messenger who comes after John the Baptist, that you are the Savior that the messenger spoke of, that you come and that you wash away our sins. You purify us through a refiner's fire to burn away that which gets in our way, that we can be united with you. Lord, we thank you for this. And we pray. We pray that you show us the way. Steady our hands. Calm our hearts. And as you are our hope, may you also be our peace.